Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 33 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 33 of Inside Quizzing, we are going to talk about, sadly, the meat that wasn't. Uh, we were planning on having a lighthouse meet or a meet at the Lighthouse Church a few weeks back, and unfortunately that did not happen. So we want to talk a little bit about why it didn't happen, and uh, then talk about some of the implications that are going to uh, happen in terms of what's going on with the quizzing, uh, the remainder of the quiz meets in uh, Pacific Northwest, and how that impacts uh, statistics and so forth, because it does have a non-trivial impact into how stacks are going to be calculated. We're going to do a John 18 and 19 chapter review, and we're going to be talking about the difficulty of quiz questions and sets across differing levels of competition in terms of, say, like uh, regional quizzing, if your district happens to do that at the district level, at something like an invitational uh, multi- uh, district sort of experience and at internationals and that all sort of layers in between of that. And then talking about questions starts with overlapping material. And if we have time, we might even get into the long-term uh, prophesying of what the future of quizzing might look like, uh, say in 15 years from now and into the beyond. So with that said, let's dive right in and probably start with our lighthouse meet. Um, yeah, very sad thing, uh, Scott, that we had to cancel it, but probably the right call. Yeah, it is kind of nice when, in hindsight, it was the right call. I had to cancel a meet a couple years ago, and in hindsight, it ended up not being the right call, which, of course, you never have the benefit of hindsight in advance. But um, there was quite a snowstorm in a lot of different areas, and it would have not been the right call to have this meet. Yeah. I don't live too terribly far away from Lighthouse. I, I think probably like about an hour or something like that uh, away from the church. Uh, so it wouldn't have been a particularly significant distance for me to travel. Uh, and I also grew up uh, not anywhere near the western half of uh, uh, Washington State. I grew up in Yakima, uh, where uh, we had we, we, we get snow and we know how to deal with snow. So I don't, I don't necessarily have any problems driving in snow, and I wouldn't have been able to get out of my house. I, I think I would have been able to get down the hill from my house, and then that's about it. Um, unless, like, I swam or something uh, to Lighthouse, I would not have been able to make it uh, on Saturday. And, of course, that was our biggest worry, right? The snowstorm was basically coming in basically Friday night and Saturday morning, and our worry was, uh, well, I pretty sure everybody would be able to commute to the quiz meet and probably be fine getting to their hosts homes Friday night. And then probably even being able to get to the church on Saturday morning, maybe. Uh, but then it was sort of like doom. Uh, it was like, yeah, it was one of those things where somebody was going to get trapped somewhere and, you know, maybe, maybe some of the teams would be able to make it just fine. But out of a, a, a across all of the churches and all of the teams, there were, there would have been somebody who got stranded somewhere. Uh, it would have been a very unfortunate situation. So unfortunately, we had to cancel and it, we, we waffled on it for several days and hoped and hoped and prayed for better forecast weather that never came. And then we had a, a leadership uh, council meeting and uh, decided, yeah, this is, this is not looking good and made the right call, uh, safety first. But there are some implications to this, uh, implications to this. So we have five uh, district meets normally scheduled, uh, for uh, PNW and then we have district championships 
And uh, at the time, we we didn't have a location yet picked out for district championships, so it was entirely possible that we would only have the five regular meets of the year, and it meant that, uh, you know, by canceling meet number four, we go from five down to four. That has a pretty significant impact on the um, stats. So kind of walk us through how that all works. So we have five district meets and then one district championships, which has a subset of the teams. And those six meets constitute an individual's average for the year for internationals purposes and for end-of-year purposes. And those meets are weighted different amounts, which gives quizzers more credit for doing well later in the year when there's more material. Um, And the sum of all those weights, like 10% here, 20% here, 35% here, the sum of those weights sums to one. So that by the time the last meet of the year, which is district champs, is done, um, the sum of all the weighted averages from the meets equals their yearly average. Well, if you take that a step back, um, we're, we only complete our five district meets before Great West happens. So only those five meets are the basis for, for Great West selection. And the sum of the weights for those five meets is 0.8, or 80%. And so you take the, their weighted averages from all those five meets and you divide it by 0.8. Well, with meet four not happening, and it's 20% weight not happening, then it just kind of goes away, um, and now you're, you're dividing by 0.6. So it's, it's as if meet four never existed, um, and it's just a little bit different math to be, to be done, but I'm pretty sure I'm just about the only one needing to do that math anyway. And then for team purposes, meets three, four, and five are what counts for teams qualifying for district championships, which is just the top 15 teams. And so those three meets are weighted various amounts, totaling to one or 100%. But with with meet four going away, I I think they total to 70% or something like that, 75%. Um, And so that's, so just meets three and five will determine our top 15 teams for district champs. And meet five is weighted more than meet three. So teams have a lot of opportunity to move up if they aren't already in the top. Yes, indeed. And as uh, Scott alluded to, we do actually have a location for district championships. So uh, through uh, some very awesome donations that have been made, uh, we are able to secure a, uh, a hotel uh, in a fairly central location. It's going to be in Kelso at the Red Lion Inn. Same date as we had previously discussed uh, in the schedule for the year. Uh, so nothing really changes. We just have an actual location where everybody can show up to. Uh, so we've got uh, hotel rooms for everybody uh, Friday night. And I think breakfast is included Saturday morning. Uh, lunch is not included, but we, the, the hotel has, uh, made available quiz rooms for us. And of course we're going to have the, uh, you know, kind of the niceness of the hotel atmosphere to be able to quiz in. I think that's fantastic. And the fact that it's in Kelso, you know, not that far North from, uh, Portland, I'm hoping to be able to find a few churches in Portland who don't currently, who, who currently aren't involved in quizzing and seeing if I can get, a few of uh, maybe their youth or their parents or youth pastor or senior pastor, somebody to come up and take a peek at what quizzing is all about. And it might be a great, uh, might be a great opportunity to be able to evangelize how awesome this program is. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Of course, we've got meet five uh, first, which is coming up in just a little under three weeks away. And that one is going to be in Madras, Oregon. 
so a fair drive for a good number of teams. Of course, uh, Madras has to make a pretty good trek uh, almost all the time. Uh, so it's kind of, uh, I guess, uh, fair that uh, we trek down to, to Madras. And of course, it's a very beautiful area and a great church and a great community uh, to be able to quiz in. So looking forward to that in just a little under three weeks. And at Madras, um, we're calling the quote-unquote new material uh, all of John 14 through 21. So at each meet, the new material for that meet will constitute half the questions. And we do that because we want to reward the quizzers that keep up with the new material. And since we're skipping meet four, we're kind of including meet four material and meet five material as the new material. So those, that would be eight chapters, will constitute half the questions. And then the first 13 chapters of John will constitute the other half of the questions. And because we have software generating our quizzes, um, it's going to be very close to 50%, if not exactly 50%. Yep, very, very true, very true. Well, shall we uh, jump into our chapter review? Yeah. All right, so chapter 18, what are your thoughts, Scott? This is this is a good chapter. It has a lot of good back and forth, which I think lends itself. It's, it's a good break from chapter 17, where it's just Jesus talking, not a whole lot of breaks, and really hard to memorize. But John 18 has back and forth, conversation, um, and yeah, it's... It's um, It should be easier to memorize than John 17, kind of a breath of fresh air on that front. And it looks like there is a good amount of unique words spread throughout the chapter. It looks like it is not a very key verse heavy chapter. I'm seeing two verses that are key verses in this chapter. So this could be one ripe for the picking for quizzers, because you're not going to have key verse quizzers sniping questions from it. Indeed. Now, based on the fact that there aren't uh, key verses, or well, there aren't a lot of key verses, only two, uh, and the fact that there are a fair number of uh, unique words, globally unique words, and uh, two-word key phrases uh, pretty well all over everything, pretty much once you get to about verse 9 or so down through the end of the chapter, uh, 40 question, or forty verses in the uh, entirety of the chapter, you figure that the jumping on this material is going to be a little bit faster, a little bit more key uh, sooner rather than later. Um, you know, reference questions, they're going to happen, but probably not as regularly as you would expect from, say, some of the other chapters with fewer unique phrases and so forth scattered amongst them. There are a lot of opportunities for some fairly straightforward situation questions. Uh, so, I mean, if you're if you're focusing on, on sits, definitely take a peek at this chapter, some good material that can come out of it. Some tricky parts, too, in terms of who said it to whom and when and so forth. So take a look at, into that sort of thing. But otherwise, it's a pretty straightforward chapter. 40 verses, a little bit on the longer side, but not egregiously so. So, I mean, keep that in mind as well. And, of course, as you're memorizing, and especially as you're reviewing, do everything that you can to include the reference, uh, the verse number, in, in as part of your quoting. You will definitely reap rewards for doing that. Absolutely. And then moving on to John 19, it just continues the story. It is very similarly... Um, it has a similar length as John 18, so 42 verses in John 19. There's likewise not a whole lot of key verses. I see five key verses. So in John 18 and 19, there's only seven total key verses. That's a very few. There are, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, the story moves on, but other than that, the, there's so many similarities to chapter 18. There's a good mix of 
global unique words. There's going to be a lot of situation questions. It looks generally pretty key, so there's not going to be a ton of um, obvious chapter verse references. There's de- they're definitely in there, but maybe not as many in- as there are in other parts of the material. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I don't have anything additional specific on this one other than look out for unique words that happen twice within a single verse. Uh, so like in uh, uh, verse 24 of chapter 19, the word let's, uh, L-E-T apostrophe S, is a global unique word that happens twice, and it starts off both quotes. Uh, let's not tear it, and let's decide by lot who will get it. Uh, and there's a few others that exist around, so just be careful on that sort of account. Um, but otherwise, uh, I got the feeling writing questions for this one, I didn't have quite as many situation questions as I did from 18. Uh, it didn't seem to uh, have a you know a healthy number uh, relative to 18. But other than that, very similar to 18 from my perspective. Yeah, there's an interesting one in verse 37. As another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Would you write um, a situation question on the quotation, they will look on the one they have pierced where the who said it is another scripture? No, I, I wouldn't. I think it's, it's valid to do so, but to me, it just doesn't feel right. You know, another scripture really, I mean, scripture doesn't speak, not audibly. So I don't know. I'm, I'm not a fan of, it would almost like say another scripture reads blank, but you know, grammar and, and ancient Greece and all that kind of stuff. Sure. So I think that's a quick look at John 18 and 19, two long chapters as we are almost to the end of one of the longest materials in the quizzing rota. Very cool. Only two more uh, chapters to go. Very exciting. So our next topic is an interesting one, and it arose through a conversation I was having. And the question is, we all know that the difficulty of quiz questions varies, both among different question types and even within question types, and definitely within question types across different materials. And there's just a whole range of super easy questions and super hard questions, regardless of how you define easy and hard. And the question is, is there an optimal difficulty level or range for a given competition level? And might that optimal level be different for different levels of competition? Thinking about maybe... Junior quizzing versus district quizzing versus interdistrict quizzing versus internationals quizzing. Well, my first reaction to the question is, can you get really specific about the word optimal? Because I think everything prior to that, I totally buy into. I think I think theoretically, most of our listeners probably buy into as well. The idea that, you know, given any two questions, there will be a difference in difficulty between those two questions. And so over the course of, say, several thousand questions, you're definitely going to be able to group them or 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 arrange them linearly on a scale uh, from easy to difficult uh, in terms of their overall difficulty. There's no there's no question about that. Uh, but then the question is, uh, what does it mean to to have questions within that range be of the optimum for a given level of competition? Sure. And so I have many thoughts. So you're going to have quizzers of all all levels of experience and knowledge of the current material. And so you want a range of difficulty um, to adequately test all of those different levels of preparedness. And over time, the quizzers who are best prepared will get the most right. And 
especially if you're jumping at a speed and not on recognition, they may jump on something that's super easy and recognizable. They may, might also jump on something hard that's um, they have to take a guess on, but over time um, they will get more right. But then I also think about kind of thinking towards your less experienced levels of quizzing that people often learn best when they are challenged a little bit beyond their current ability. And so, like, if you have a, a, a toddler learning to walk and you start teaching them how to triple jump, it, it might discourage them from even wanting to walk. I mean, this might be a, a harebrained analogy. Um, but theoretically, even in a randomly generated question set, you could get questions that are much difficult, much more difficult than a level of quizzer is prepared to answer to the extent of maybe either errors or no jumps are the norm um, with few correct questions. And I don't know if that would be considered optimal in that scenario. Sure. Well, and I mean, and it's, and it's fairly similar. I might, I might change your, you know, track star toddler analogy a little bit and say, let's say learning to fly an airplane, right? Uh, if somebody, if, if a CFI, a, a certified flight instructor, put you in an airplane and said, here is everything you need to know and just brain dumped like all of the knowledge at you over the course of maybe half an hour on the ground and then said, okay, great, there's the go button, uh, go fly around a little bit and come back, good luck. Um, that would not be a good way to learn how to fly an airplane. Um, it would result in lots of negative outcomes. Um, some, so, so ultimately what the CFI does is he, he, he takes you up and says, here's some basic stuff, get comfortable with it. Here's some more stuff and constantly sort of, ad, sort of adds on to this, that sort of structure in terms of, of learning and so forth. The problem with quizzing is, and I, I it's not really a problem. It's, it's actually a wonderful thing about quizzing. It's just sort of the nature of quizzing. We're not, we're not memorizing in a vacuum, or rather we're not competing in a vacuum. It's not one person standing up and saying, okay, uh, Scott, your question that nobody else is able to jump on or has an opportunity for is this. And then after that, uh, we're going to go to your competitor who's going to get a different question of the same, uh, you know, uh, uh, difficulty and then just go back and forth until, you know, sudden death, somebody makes a mistake or something like that. Instead, we have, we, we quiz theoretically with as many as 12 people, uh, 12 competitors on the stage at any one time, possibly three subs on top of that, you know, especially when you're talking about, say, invitationals and, and internationals and so forth. And now granted in internationals, uh, the skill level depth is maybe narrower because it's at the upper end of the, of the spectrum. Uh, than it would be, say, at a typical district meet. But generally speaking, there is going to be a spectrum of, of skill and a spectrum of, of, of capability. So at a typical district meet, you're going to have rookies coming in who are, uh, you know, they're even just the nature of having 20 questions and the different question types can feel a little bit overwhelming, especially the first quizzer, uh, the first quiz or two of the first meet uh, of the year. They can feel pretty overwhelmed pretty quickly. Uh, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you've also got returning quizzers from internationals who are very comfortable with everything at, at a district meet. And so ultimately, I think ideally from my perspective, the optimal quiz, di uh, uh, the optimal question difficulty at a district meet is all of the difficulty, uh, because you need to have questions that are answerable 
for the first time uh, quizzer or the quizzer who is is uh, feeling easily overwhelmed and just wants to get you know an easy win on maybe one or two questions, but at the same time you want to provide some uh, challenges for the advanced quizzer. Uh, so you can't just have a whole bunch of easy questions because then what would be the motivation to do much more studying than the basic level? Interesting. So changing the question slightly and not talking about the optimal difficulty level of a particular question or question set, would you say it is suboptimal to have a wide range of abilities in a competition? Like, well, like if it, you have an inter, a returning internationals quizzer and a brand new quizzer and wanting to have a range of questions that can potentially cater to both. No, see, so I don't, again, well, okay. Uh, again, it goes back to what you define as optimal, right? Um, I think what we're trying to do in the program is get the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses, whether they be, uh, you know, uh, starting out, you know, there, there are quizzers who are going to be here for, you know, three, four, five, six years. Uh, there are quizzers who are going to go to internationals. There are quizzers who are going to put in a huge amount of effort uh, in prep time and a huge amount of practice time to get really good at quizzing. And then there are quizzers who won't do those things. Uh, there are quizzers who are here even just for a single season. There are quizzers who are here just for a few quiz meets within a season they're going to memorize maybe a few verses here and there, but that's about it. They're, they're not going to progress beyond sort of that basic level. And our goal, I think, as a program is to say, how do we get the most number of quizzers to memorize the most material uh, across all of those different kinds of quizzers, right? People who are going to come in and, and work very hard at it, people who are going to come in and not work very hard at it, but just do it for a short period of time. I want to try to get everybody across that to memorize the most and to me it seems like the way you do that that to optimize for that solution right is to have uh your quizzer scramble together from my perspective you can you can have your uh, quizzer scramble together and you're going to have as and as a result of that you're going to have to have a wide range of of uh difficulty of questions and have those scrambled uh, up together so that there's opportunities for the, uh, uh, say, more junior uh, quizzers in skill level. And then there's uh, also opportunity to distinguish oneself if you happen to be on the advanced end of the spectrum. The problem is if you start to narrow those ranges artificially, either in question difficulty or in the level, the, the, the spans of competition, I think ultimately what you're going to do is you're basically trying to sort of manage the ecosystem and you'll ultimately do something that's suboptimal, right? Um, and I think there's something to be said for the quizzer who is able, who is a, say, a more on, on the junior side of things. I don't mean by age, but I mean more junior from a uh, skill level perspective, right? Uh, they, there is something to be said for getting into a quiz and being able to get a question, uh, even if it's a bonus question, and then also experiencing a key verse specialist jump on a syllable and nail a two, uh, a quote these two verses, uh, word perfect on the first time through with lots of time to spare. There's something inspiring about like, wow, look at how much further I can go there. Now, I mean, it, it, this, this sort of analogy starts to break down, right? But in, in, in a similar way, imagine how, uh, interested you might be to play golf with some, uh, of the, 
uh, higher end champions of golf. But if there was some sort of like, and, and forgive me, I know virtually nothing about golf, but if there, if we took all of the holes in golf and made them very short, uh, or made the, the, the pars very small, like a par two or a par three, uh, somebody at the Tiger Woods level would probably find that to be pretty boring and not terribly interesting, right? Does that make sense? It does. That's actually a funny analogy because there was a time when Tiger was a new golfer and dominating and hitting it farther than everyone. So kind of just better than everyone. And people thought the solution was to tiger proof the course and make every hole longer. Well, that only increases the, um, the amount that he is better than everybody else. Um, if you want to really make it a, a more level playing field for all, you want to make it almost as easy as possible. Cause on a, like a not well-maintained mini putt course, I might have a chance to win. But if you if you double the length of a normal golf course, you you take the zero 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 one percent chance that I have of winning and make it nil. Um, so that's an interesting analogy, right? I guess so it would almost be like if you're going to play golf, it, it's like imagine a golf course where the lanes are incredibly narrow, and if you hit it out of a lane, like you have to forfeit the hole or something. I, I mean, this is a, a terrible, terrible, terrible you know, surgery on a, on a bad analogy to begin with. But the idea of saying, well, if you have a bunch of par sevens, uh, a Griffin versus a Tiger Woods, um, I would be terrible. I would be, I would be utterly demotivated. I would play one, uh, I would play one game and say, great, that was interesting. I'm never going to do that again. Uh, in, and then take it to the other extreme. Let's say you have, uh, everything is a par two. Uh, Tiger would look at that and go, well, this is dumb. Like, oh, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna devote my life to this, you know, kind of thing. In, to really work this out, we either have to have, uh, we have to have basically one of two situations. We either have to have a professional league with par sevens and a, you know, Griffin League with par twos. Uh, and then all the Griffins go to the par twos and all the Tiger Woods go to the par sevens and everybody competes in those, uh, in those stages. But then, and that would work and that would work. But ultimately I would look at, even if I started playing the, the par twos and I started to get fairly good at the par twos, I would look at Tiger on a par seven and say, wow, that's impressive. I would never be able to do there. And that, that leap of jumping from a par two to par seven can seem insurmountable and might even be insurmountable uh, for for me, uh, little old Griffin, when it, you know doing a, a a part two. But imagine you have a you know an eighteen hole course where uh, it's a variety, a wide variety, some part twos, some par sevens, and you've got both Griffin and uh, Tiger on there. Well, I can actually do decently well on the simpler holes and, you know, feel good about it and feel motivated and encouraged. I can also see Tiger and I can see his skill and I can be impressed by it up close. Uh, and because there are par sevens out there, his skill will absolutely, unless there's some sort of fluke, uh, his, his skill will absolutely put him ahead by the end of the course, uh, because he's had the opportunity to demonstrate his skill on the, on the harder things. Yep. And I, I think, yeah, I think I see what you're saying and it makes sense. And I see how valuable it is to have both prelims at a meet where everyone's competing together. And then also your brackets after that, which can split 
up the different tiers of competition. Because if you actually look at our three tiers of competition, we have a semifinals, a consolation A, and a consolation B. The difference in overall accuracy between each of those levels is very small. I think the range is something like 76% to 71%. And what it really just shows is that the quizzers are self-modulating their jump speed to their knowledge levels to hit kind of this subconscious ideal accuracy level that kind of always ends up being close to that because of the structure of quizzing with three three teams and quiz outs and air outs and toss ups and all of that. Right, absolutely. It's, it's kind of this interesting web that all convolutes as a negative, has a negative connotation, but also all kind of comes together to create um, a very similar competition, regardless of the skill level. And yeah, interesting. Um, well, well I, and of I, course, we have slightly different goals too, right? So, like in quizzing, our goal is to get everyone to uh, memorize more. In golf, the goal is not to encourage everyone to play golf, right? Um, there, there's very different goals. Uh, you know, if you're talking about the Masters Championship, uh, it's a, it's, it has a very, very different goal than what a district meet is trying to do. Sure. Yep. And that makes sense as well. Um, <clears throat> I guess in my head, the use case I was thinking of is a quizzer who isn't experienced but has motivation and interest, but the questions are just so far beyond them that they lose that motivation and interest. And what I'm realizing is the actuality of that use case is probably very rare in practice. Well, yes, across maybe an entire quiz, um, maybe certainly even less so across an entire meet, but definitely it exists in terms of say a single question, right? So, I mean, if I haven't, if I'm, you know, it's my first meet, it's my first quiz and I get out there and it's question number one and it's a standard question, a unique word, what, right? Um, and it's something that I've just memorized. It's one of the first five or, or 10 verses of the chapter uh, of chapter one there's a pretty good chance that I'm going to be able to know the answer. Now, there's also a very good chance I won't be able to get the jump, but I can at least, I can say like, okay, I, I knew that one. I didn't get the jump. Somebody else got the jump, but I, but I knew the answer. I'm, I'm tracking along. I'm feeling encouraged that really all I have to do is kind of hone in on my jump a little bit better and I can, I can start to pick up these questions. But then question number two is a quote these two verses. Uh, and it's from chapter four or something, maybe the middle of chapter four, which had, you know, 55 verses or something like that. And I've, and I, I, and basically somebody jumps on it. I have absolutely no idea how to answer the question. They start quoting and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I, I remember memorizing that. There's no way I, 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 at the, in the moment there's, I would think to myself, like, there's no way that I would be able to do that in, and that sort of question in isolation would be demotivating, right? So like in, in, on one, in, you know, question number one, very motivating or at least neutral. Uh, and of course, if I get the jump, highly motivating. Question number two, uh, same context, highly demotivating, right? But then if you expand that to the entire quiz or several quizzes within a particular meet, I think that's where you start to see the case where you get both encouragement to excel for, for all levels of the competition and also a sort of general sense of encouragement that comes along with it. Now to that, that, that also requires that it, 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 we're talking about more than just 
the level of competition. We're also talking about the culture of quizzing, uh, which is incredibly important. Uh, and, and which I'm very proud to say that we, we have, uh, and I've seen, you know, in other districts as well, this, uh, culture of encouragement across, uh, uh teams, uh, the encouragement factor while the competition is going on. And that's fantastic. Yeah. I like this. I like, I like considering the way that you're doing something and working to ensure that it's still meeting your end goal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, shall we? Should we hit our next topic? Yeah, go for it. This What's is, up? This is kind of uh, question writing now. So um, we're in the realm of it's valid, but is it good when we're writing quiz questions? And so this this case of it, it's valid, but is it good is what I kind of call overlapping material. So a verse might start, so the man went out to Jerusalem to draw water. And you could write the interrogative, so the man what? And you could also write a question, the man what? And you could also write, went out where? Um, and you could also write, um, who went out to Jerusalem to draw water? And all these questions that start very kind of similarly, they don't start on the, on the same word, but they cover a lot of the same material. And I just kind of wanted your question writing thoughts and preferences for, I mean, I'm going to use the word optimal again, but like that best meets the goals of quiz questions, which I'm implying them, but we can also talk about what we think the the goals of um, quiz questions are. I have I have less strong opinions about this. Um, so I'll tell you what I do personally when I write questions, but I don't. I by no means think it it's necessarily right, and and I, I don't even necessarily know that it's optimal. I I tend to look at a particular verse. And I will look at like a lot of those overlapping types of questions and say, of those overlapping three, four, five different kinds of questions, what's the best one or maybe the best two that I can write uh, to cover the material that's there? Uh, in terms of something that flows, it covers. The, if, if there's two questions I can write, I will tend to pick the question that covers more of the material or requires more of the material either to be provided. Uh, in the answer or just as a, as a, the length of the question covers more of the material, that kind of thing, I'll tend to lean in that direction. Um, and I'll tend to do a little bit of overlapping, uh, but eventually I'll kind of stop after about maybe the third overlapping question on the same material. I tend to try to look at other ways to, to write it, maybe a different kind of different question type. So if I've got, say, two or three interrogatives, I might try to look for a reference question at that point, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I'm always sort of like, I'm always starting with the material. I start with the verse and then say, it, it's almost like a sculptor. I'm saying what I, cause it, and, and quite literally, you know, when I'm writing questions in CBQZ, I hit the copy verse button. So I'm literally, I've got all of the content in front of me and and what what I'm thinking of is what of this content am I deleting what am I carving away what am I sculpting away to create a question uh, and so like what I'd like to do is try to carve as little of the material away as possible to still come up with a good question and so I kind of iterate in that sort of mindset but in terms of like you know what's the downside of doing it differently like what would be so, you know, hypothetically, what would be so awful about looking at a particular verse and writing every possible question that you could get out of that verse, even to the pedantic overlapping 
you know, standard interrogative question level, what would be the harm in doing that? I don't know that there would be a ton, um, because ultimately you, you still have your question type minimums and maximums that have to be met uh, because of the rules. Uh, uh, so that if you have, a, you know, a hundred times as many standard questions as you do, say, multiple answers or something, I don't know that it really matters um, as long as you have sufficient questions of all the question types across the material, right? So we're not talking about like favoring one question type over another, but we're just saying, yeah. let's just have tons and tons and tons of overlapping questions. I don't know that there's really a negative to doing that. I mean, I, I mean, and, and part of CBQZ is, uh, there's, it, it tends to favor different verses rather than clustering of say, like, t- it is in, it is possible to end up in a situation with CBQC where you have say two interrogatives from the same verse in the same quiz, but it's highly unlikely. Um, so you know, I don't know. I, is there? Can you think of anything that would be negative about either doing the overlapping or avoiding the over- overlapping? So in a world where we can both prevent um, questions from the same verse arising in a single quiz, and when we can prioritize asking questions that haven't been asked before. So we're not going to ask question A nine times before we ask question B a second time, for example. I think in that world, um, there's there are not a whole lot of downsides. And I know even before it was made easy in software, I think Western Canada had a local rule that didn't allow for the same verse to be used as the basis for a question twice in the same quiz. And that's just a desire to test quizzers on the 20-odd questions in a quiz on as wide a range of material as possible. And so kind of in that same vein, even though everything's random and you might get to finish the verse in one quiz and then a quote in the next quiz on the exact same verse and the same quizzer jumps on them, like, that's totally possible now. But I kind of wouldn't want it to be possible to have, like, so Jesus went out to Jerusalem to what? And, you know... Quizzer jumps on it, gets it right in one quiz. And then the very next quiz they jump on, Jesus went out to Jerusalem to what? And it's like 99% the exact same question, like type, form, content. It just starts one word later. To me, I don't like that scenario even being a minuscule possibility. And so when I come to any chunk of material, I'm trying to write like the, the questions that best test this bit of material. And if... I have a question of the same type, very similarly constructed as another one, that I'm, I kind of want to force myself to say, well, which one's better? And is there really a value to writing both of these? Might I be able to tweak one of them and write it as a really good reference question or something of that nature? Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. But I guess, I mean, it, most question sets are 5,000 plus questions, and so the odds of a quizzer even in a, an entire meet, jumping on two questions remotely similar in content and structure is quite small. Yeah, I very just, small. I just, when I'm at the question writing phase and you can have some amount of control over the inputs into a big question set, I like to pick the best and not, try to not let myself get influenced by say, oh, um, the structure of this verse is he, and then the next, the verb is a unique word. Some question writers will just start the interrogative question and write it on the keyword. And to me, I'm like, well, if it wasn't a unique word, I'm probably starting it at he. So the fact that it is a unique word shouldn't dissuade me from starting it at he. Um, and I just try to rely on the same principles of does it test the material well? Does it flow um, when you speak it? 
is it you know crystal clear to understand to the quizzer and all of that stuff. Um, interesting. So I, th- I, I like these discussions on preferences and style when it comes to quiz questions because I think you're right that at the end of the day it doesn't matter a lot, but they're still interesting to me because in my head there's some holy grail of of um, the optimal way to write questions. Um, I've heard I've heard someone say that they won't write like um, Jesus went out to Jerusalem to what and who went out to Jerusalem to what. So it's not like every time you can write the who interrogative along with kind of the reverse, starting with the noun and subject of the sentence. Um, they won't write both of them. They might pick one sometimes and the other sometimes, whereas I'm generally writing both of those, and in my head I don't think of them as very similar, but they probably are more similar than I think. They might be similar, sure, but I mean, I would I would counter with the idea of what's the harm in writing both. Um, I, I, just, I mean, I, I would... Certainly, I'm not advocating that we look at a given verse and we try to squeeze every last drop of question writing potential out of the verse uh, before moving on. Because, yeah, you'll end up with a bunch of questions, but, you know, a good third of them won't be very good. Um, they'll be technically valid, but they'll just be kind of ugly and gross and not flow well and that sort of thing. And uh, I, I think there's... An opportunity in the material that we have, if you're writing somewhere between three, four, five, six ver- uh, questions in a given verse, uh, you're going to end up with thousands upon thousands of questions, the majority of which never get asked the entire uh, year. Uh, so it seems to me like, you know, yes, we can squeeze every question out of a verse, but to what end? It ultimately pollutes the pool of questions with uh, maybe some less ideal questions. Uh, and so to me, that seems suboptimal. I want to have uh, every question be clear, unambiguous. I want I want situations where ideally I would love if a quizzer gets a question incorrect that there's no ambiguity around why, you know, like, like if it, after a quiz meet is over, if they can go back and, and listen to the recording and they can see the question and they can see the material and then go, okay, this was clear. It was clear. It's unambiguous. It wasn't uh, tricky. I understand what happened. That's kind of the goal because, you know, to me, anything that's tricky uh, beyond a certain point, and again, what's that point? I, I don't know. It's very subjective. But beyond a certain point, trickiness feels demotivating. Sure. How do you feel about questions that span verses? So they're fine. Um, I personally kind of shy away from them. I, I mean, they're completely fine. Um, and I really should probably not shy away from them. I should probably get over my shyness. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I'm I, I'm sure you feel completely fine about them, right? Yeah. And I, I think far too often we limit ourselves to wanting the entire question and answer to come from a single verse. And, I mean, the verse numbers are worth put in arbitrarily <laughs> and often yes. some, some really weird breaks. I think is at the end of Hebrews 10 um, and the way it flows into Hebrews 11, the by faith chapter, it just has like a weird short verse at the end of chapter 10. And I was given an example from uh, Hebrews 3. You know, there's verse 8, which reads, during the time of testing in the wilderness, and then comma, you go to verse 9, where your fathers tested and tried me, and um, and it goes on. Well, you could probably say it's better to write a question, you know, during the time of testing in the desert, where your father's what, as a multiple answer, than, say, just starting it at your father's, you know? Because if you're just starting it at your father's, you're missing a lot of the context about 
like the actual meaning of the verse um, in your attempt to, to limit it, limit the content to one verse. Yeah, yeah, and I I totally agree. Now there are definitely times where um, verse one ends. There's a sentence with a period at the end of it, and then there's a new sentence in verse two. And maybe it's in the middle of a quotation, or there's some case to be made for continuing it on through. But um, you definitely don't have to force it, because there are often very clear breaks between verses. Yeah. Do we have time for our next topic, or should we wrap up? Yeah, let's, let's hit into it. The future of quizzing, the long-term future of quizzing. What does quizzing look like in 15 years? So, I don't know, Scott, what do you think quizzing looks like in 15 years? I am not... I'm not sure. I think it'll be interesting to see how evangelical church membership trends um, go over 15 years. And it would, it would be interesting to see where, I don't know, where people's interest levels go. I think, I think you and you, you think definitely more than me, but I, I agree that the rise of tech and personal tech has decreased um, interest levels in quizzing among youth. And, I know from talking to someone else that the general, it's not the decrease in liturgy, but it's, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a much smaller value put on Bible quizzing by parents than used to be put. Um, so, for example, there's such an importance put on um, education and where you go to college and preparing for all this, and very little on any sort of spiritual um, preparation. And oftentimes sports and academics are going to be prioritized above Bible quizzing, which I guess I'm sounding judgy, and I definitely don't mean to to sound that way. Um, But I think there's a lot of factors there which which have and could continue to decrease interest levels in Bible quizzing. Do you have any – those are some kind of general societal – Yeah, so, well – you probably, I don't know what it's called, but you ever play this game? It's kind of like a youth group game or, you know, like a, a big party game. I, I don't call the snake or something similar to that, where basically like you'll have the, the head of the snake will be, you know, some person, one or two people, and they'll link arms. And then you basically keep adding people to the end of this long line of people. And either you link arms or you just grab each other's hands or something right but you end up creating this sort of long uh you know snaking kind of uh structure with you know human beings holding hands or linking arms or something in the long thing and there will be sort of this designated front end of the snake the head of the snake and then everybody else kind of falls into the body and the tail and the snake will start to move right so the idea is the people and i'm not really sure I don't know. There isn't really a way to win or lose. It's just a silly game that you play. But basically, the head of the snake starts to move around a room. So you got to imagine you, you're in like a large gym or large room or something like that. And the head of the snake snake starts to move and kind of moves back and forth a little bit. And as it's moving back and forth and kind of basically slithering, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, the ripples it creates kind of waves that kind of ripple down through the body to the end and to the tail. And what ends up happening is, you know, especially if you're talking about, say, a youth group uh, activity, junior high kids, high school kids or whatever, um, it will very quickly move from a let's create a wave to let's see how much we can fling people off the tail of the snake. So have you, have you ever played this? Have you heard of this? Um, I mean, I've played the game on like an old 
cell phone, but I, I I've never played it like as a person. <laughs> wow. So this is oh wow. So this it's actually transitioned into being an electronic game. So yeah, no, it's I mean I I I used to play this. Uh, well, I'm, I don't know if I would play it. Actually, I think I was. I mean, this is a long time ago, but yeah, it was like, this is what we did before we had electricity. We would, we would get in these long snake things and we would try to whip people off the end of the tail. And I mean, it's fun. And, and so what ends up happening is there's, I don't know the physics behind it, but a small amount of force at the beginning of the tail, as it kind of ripples through the tail, uh, waves its way through the tail. By the time it gets to the end, the tail end is kind of whiplashing back and forth. It's almost like, you know, the Indiana Jones whip where you kind of crack the whip. And what's happening is there is a, a wrist motion, you know, down at the base of the whip. But what ends up happening, it's the tail of the whip that, that basically that cracking sound is going faster than the speed of sound. And you're getting this kind of like little mini sonic boom as the thing cracks, right? Because it's going so fast. The same sort of apparatus happens in the snake. And so ultimately what happens is where the snake starts to disintegrate or people off the end of it, they're getting kind of flung back and forth by the, the force that's being generated. Okay, so with that analogy in mind... I think that describes what's going on with the modern Christian church. So at the head of the snake of the modern Christian church, you have sort of, well, the church, like, like the actual, uh, like Sunday morning church service, right? But then there are other things that like, like church isn't just the Sunday morning church service, right? It, there, there's, there are ministries, there are outreach programs, there's youth group, there is Bible quizzing, right? And, as you progress down this snake, let's say if you imagine, say, Sunday morning worship is near the head of the snake, and then a next step down might be a youth program or or Christian education, and then behind that would be, say, the youth group itself, and then behind that might be Bible quizzing, right? Um, as the snake starts to get moved around, ultimately the things that will get kind of thrown off the end of the snake are at the end of the snake, not at the beginning of the snake. And so, um, and of course now I'm realizing it's a terrible, terrible, awful, no good analogy to refer to the church as the snake. I'm starting to realize it's <laughs> dawning on me that that was probably not the best choice on my part. Um, but the idea being that, that you, you're going to see the effects of societal shifts impacting i think quizzing before it in, it impacts the youth group and it's going to impact the youth group before it impacts say christian education and it's going to impact christian education before it impacts the local church as a whole right and i think what we're seeing is we're we're seeing a societal shift in america that's that has already happened in in england uh, great britain and happened in Europe even before it happened in Great Britain, where we are transitioning uh, from where we were, say, 50 or, or 100 years ago into a new place, a call it a post-Christian uh, United States, right? Where it's, there's always going to be Christianity, right? It's not like Christianity is going to be outlawed. It's not like, you know, any kind of crazy end time sort of thing like that, but we're moving to a point where Christianity is not going to be commonplace. It's not going to be the sort of the, the de facto standard. It's, it's going to be kind of fringy and it's going to be kind of, it's going to become quaint in, in, in a sense. 
And as a result, the, I mean, we're not, we're, we're not there right now. And I don't know how long it's going to take. Maybe it takes, you know, 15 years. Maybe it takes 30. Maybe it takes another hundred years, but we're, we're, tra- we're moving in that direction. As that happens, the, the, the church snake, right? Sticking with the awful analogy, we're going to see programs like quizzing start to kind of come into rapid decline uh, where it's, it's going to get to basically a cliff and then just kind of drop off precipitously. The interesting thing is culturally, we're going to see it happen in the United States before we see it in Canada, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I, I think this change is going to happen in the U.S. first and Canada might have another 20 to 40 years on us, maybe, uh, maybe longer. I, I'm not really sure. Uh, but it, it seems to me that, that we're, if, if quizzing is going to massively change, it's going to change first in the United States and then ripple outward and or not, not ripple outward. But I mean, I think the, 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 the societal changes will impact Canadian quizzing, uh, long after they have already had the impact on, on us quizzing. Um, and so anyway, lots of words to sort of describe that. So I, I'm seeing quizzing as a fundamentally fantastic program that has a, a tremendous amount of value and is not really even duplicated in value by any other program. Like I don't really see anything else that can do what quizzing can do. And I also see it at a point where it's kind of in danger of ceasing to exist. And I don't, and, and I, I don't mean to be like doom and gloom about it, but I'm, you know, in terms of 15 years from now, do I see quizzing as predominantly existing in the United States? I think it will. There will be a remnant of quizzing, but it won't be anything like what we have right now unless we are able, uh, we, the collective, you know, quizzing we, is are, are able to make some sort of fundamental shift or growth or or something uh, in terms of of what quizzing can be or could be. Uh, but that that's sort of the big macro picture. But then at the micro picture, I think we're going to see you know over the course of the next five to ten years in quizzing, I'm going to I think we're going to see increasing uses of technology. Technology is going to become cheaper and cheaper and easier, easier and easier and easier to leverage. Uh, for quizzing. So we're going to see more of that come to bear. Uh, I think that'll be a, a certain, a, a, certainly a benefit to quizzing. Uh, we were even talking about how the last quiz meet, uh, we had to cancel because of snow. Imagine being able to call each other up on Google Hangouts or Skype or, you know, Zoom or some other sort of, you know, uh, uh, conferencing technology and actually conduct a quiz meet. Uh, over the internet. Now, I mean, it's nowhere near as fun as actually being able to get together and fellowship and have that sort of quizzing experience together, uh, in a location. But, uh, maybe something like that is coming in the next 10 years. It's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, something like that definitely would be less fun. But if you used it as just a pure augmentation, like, um, between meets, there was, um, something which contributed 3% to your average, you know, that, um, kind of kept everyone on track because I, I think that is a, m- a main value of having many quiz meets is that um, it's definitely motivation motivational signposts for quizzers as they keep studying. Yeah, okay. um, and I, yeah technology will increasingly be used. Um, if we're um, continuing to use the NIV 2011, it'll make it easier and easier once we start looping around and have 
um, a bank of questions like I believe every district used to have from NIV 1984. Um, they could just kind of recycle those every eight years and, and made logistics a lot easier. I'm, I'm definitely interested to see where the quiz jump equipment goes. Um, I'm actually quite pleased with the, the quality level of the quiz benches as they stand now. They were pretty poor about a decade ago or five to ten years ago, but they're, they're really good right now. They're definitely not, um, not more portable, and I don't know if it's possible to make a product like that that's both super portable but also high quality and resilient. Um, but I think there are definitely some difficulties with <clears throat> quiz benches, um, price and transportability, and then quiz pads, re- price, reliability, and ability to be used with chairs as increasingly flat top metal folding chairs are going away. And so there's a decent amount of logistical hurdles to putting on a quiz meet. And I think if you have the means to purchase 10 sets of benches with backups, then that's obviously an awesome way to put on a quiz meet. But for a lot of districts and new programs, I think it's that's not an option. And so there, there's quite a barrier to entry when you need to have a certain type of chair plus $300 of equipment that can be of good or bad quality. Well, and certainly what quizzing is in 15 years is going to be a direct product uh, and primarily a direct product of what each and every person involved in quizzing does between now and those uh, at the end of those 15 years and at every moment in between, right? I think it's incumbent upon each and every one of us who is involved in quizzing to evangelize uh, the value of quizzing and to work collaboratively to try to expand uh, the program as, as best we can uh, in the face of the sort of the oncoming uh, uh, decline that I uh, that I see coming, uh, say, over the next 20 years uh, in Christianity. Uh, and I think the, there's reason to be optimistic. Um, we, we just have to fight against the the apathy that can become so prevalent uh, about our faith and about our doctrine. We we kind of I think it's a Christians. This is me, the pastor, talking now. I mean, I think Christians we can fall into that kind of trap of saying, "Well, uh, I I have faith and my hope in in salvation. I'm okay. I don't really need to necessarily do anything more." And it's easy to ignore calls to take a step out and a step further uh, along the road. Uh, we need to be cognizant that those choices in micro levels may not necessarily have any sort of noticeable impact, but over macro periods of time, uh, they can shift whole programs and whole uh, responses to the call of faith. Definitely. And I think for all of these three topics, I think we could revisit all of them with some guests and have some really cool conversations around them. Yeah, Absolutely. All right. Well, we should probably wrap up there. Uh, so uh, as always, of course, uh, please follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can follow us at, at Inside Quizzing. And we very much want to hear questions, comments, feedbacks, uh, disagreements that you might have with anything that we've said or anything that you think we might have said. Uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. We would very much like to hear from you. And with that, I will say thanks, everybody. And thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a good night. 